Hey, it's your host, Kamea, and you're listening to Green Dreamer. As a community-powered podcast, we do need your direct support to keep the show alive. And if every listener chipped in just a little a month, we would meet our fundraising goal in no time. And that is the power of the collective. So join us today as a co-creator of Green Dreamer at greendreamer.com support. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to sign up to our newsletter at greendreamer.com to receive the highlights and recommended resources from every episode. Quite a lot of people get a little bit hung up on the idea of debt being a bad thing. There's nothing really wrong with debt in principle, right? The sort of toxic elements of debt tend to be around who's issuing it on what terms and on, on are they doing it in an extractive kind of way. Today, we're speaking with Brett Scott, a journalist, campaigner, monetary anthropologist, and former financial broker. He's the author of Cloud Money, Cash Cards, Crypto, and the War for Our Wallets, and The Heretic's Guide to Global Finance. He publishes the Altered States of Monetary Consciousness newsletter and tweets as Suit Possum, both of which, as well as additional resources from this episode, are going to be linked in our show notes at greendreamer.com. We'll be diving into various facets of the financial system today and talk about their implications for labor and our planetary health. But we start off here by clarifying how the fractional reserve banking system works, as this debunks a common misconception about the banking world that many have and that I certainly had before in thinking that when someone takes a loan from the bank, what happens is that the bank lends out money that had previously been deposited by other people who saved their money with that bank. So it turns out this isn't the case at all. And learning about the truth in terms of how this all works has been really eye-opening for me as I ponder about how the further expansion of global monetary debt might consequently make the continued exploitation of labor and all parts of the planet inevitable or feel inevitable. I have one particular way of describing what is sometimes called fractional reserve banking. One point to make is that actually this term fractional reserve banking is controversial it's sort of more accurate nowadays to call it credit creation of money. That's a sort of a technical point. If you're ever around money geeks, they'll get all kind of like iffy about what terms you use. But yeah, you, you, you sort of made the quote from my book, but the, the stuff around the gym and emotions comes from my Substack, a separate piece that I wrote in my Substack newsletter, which is trying to convey a method for understanding this process. Now, one of the main problems people have across the political spectrum when they're trying to think about this concept of fractional reserve banking is that they imagine that there's one type of money in society. This is the, like, the one form of money fallacy. And this is one of the biggest conceptual errors people make when they're trying to understand how the monetary system works. So they'll say things, for example, oh, I put my money in a bank. The bank takes that money and gives it to somebody else. Now, in that statement, you're imagining there's a single form of money going into one institution and then out again, right? So this is the one form of money thinking. And the key thing to actually understanding the banking sector and concepts like fractional reserve banking or credit creation of money is you have to conceptualize that there's actually more than one form of money. And so I have various metaphors by which to convey this idea. And the key idea to kind of like grasp is this notion that you can issue out promises for something 
and that becomes a sort of second form. And well, let me let me just I'll go to the sort of Substack piece that I was writing about emotions, so fractional reserve emotion. And I'm say I said in this piece, I in my daily life I'm constantly issuing out promises upon myself to people. So I say, hey, I'll see you at some point, or hey, uh, let's go grab a drink at some some time, all right? Uh, or let's do a collaboration, right? And every time I'm doing that, I'm issuing out a promise. I'm issuing out a sort of, a, sort of some kind of statement about a future action that I'm going to be taking. And actually, I'll often be issuing out far more of these promises upon my energy than I actually have the ability to simultaneously deal with, all right? So if everybody that I've given a promise to simultaneously came back to me and said, hey, Brett, let's go do that thing right now. I wouldn't have the reserves of energy to be able to simultaneously deal with that. And I'm sure you're the same, right? Most people issue out far more promises against themselves and they actually have the ability to redeem immediately. Now, many institutions do this, and this is a fractional reserve system. Basically, you have a reserve of energy, you have a, you have an, a, a pool of, of available resources and then promises that you push out against that okay and for, and i use also the example of a, of a gym to convey this idea you know any gym that you go to issues out far more memberships than they have the ability to well, well if, if everybody who had a membership simultaneously visited the gym they wouldn't be able to accommodate them all at the same time right so they'll only have space for like let's say 200 people but they'll issue out like 5,000 memberships, all because they actually assume that what's going to happen is that not everybody will visit at the same time. Okay. Now, banks are doing a similar thing. They actually have a reserve of government-issued money, and they actually issue out promises against that. Okay. So, they issue out what are called IOUs, which basically promises saying, hey, you can come and get that money at some point. But they issue out far more of these promises than they actually have in state money. And this is, this is what's called fractional reserve banking. They have a fraction of what they actually have promised out. Mm. I have another metaphor I can go into if you would like me to, <laughs> to, to convey sure, that. Sure, while we're which here. I, yeah, which, which is actually probably one of the easiest ones to use, which is like the one I use in, in Cloud Money, the book. I talk about casinos, all right? And casinos are a very useful metaphor to convey the sort of the idea of two types of two classes of money. So if I walk into a casino with, you know, $100 of state-issued money or federal reserve-issued money, I, and I hand it over to the casino cashier, they will take ownership of that money and they will issue me with chips in the casino, okay? Now, I have ownership of the chips. They have ownership of the cash, all right, behind the counter. Now, in this situation, you suddenly see there are actually two forms of money present. There is the state or government-issued money behind the counter, and then there's this casino-issued IOU, essentially, a type of promise saying, if you come back to us, we will give you back money. We'll give you back cash for this, right? But in the meantime, I actually hold this promise in the form of a chip, and I can then transfer it to other people in the casino. So it's actually a privately issued form of money that will circulate around the confines of a casino. All right. And that's a sort of physical chip. And the banking sector actually does something quite similar. They, they issue out, when you hand money to them, hand state-issued money or government money to them, they will take ownership of it and issue out chips to you, except they will issue it out to you in digital form. 
And most importantly, if you want to try to understand this fractional reserve concept, they can issue out far more of these digital chips than they actually have in government money. So I use the casino met metaphor as a way to sort of convey this idea of like chips. The important thing to understand with the banking sector is that they have this ability to create a lot more of those. And the vast majority of the money that we actually use in society is in the form of these commercial bank issued digital chips, which hypothetically can be redeemed back for cash, right? But most of them don't actually end up doing that. Most of them circulate around within the banking sector, and that's the whole digital payment system. Right. So I want to clarify, is it true then that it is literally impossible for everyone to take out the cash that they saved at their banks at the same time, and also that it is literally impossible for every person and entity currently with financial debt to be debt-free at the same time? Because if banks are lending out money as IOUs for money that they never had as a whole, but then asking for an interest in payment back, that itself creates more and more debt that wasn't in the system before, which means that our collective debt is only growing. And the bottom line would be that our collective debt exceeds our collective reserves. It's a complex answer to this. Uh, the first thing to bear in mind is that if everyone paid back the debt, there would be no money in society. All right. So... There's nothing inherently wrong with forms of credit, all right, uh, types of promissory systems saying, hey, if you give me something now, I promise to return something to you later. So, for example, if you think about a simple promise structure between friends, all right, let's say you have nothing right now, right, and a friend of yours has something and you say, hey, would you mind just giving me some of that and then, you know, in a week's time, I'll, I'll return something to you. That's a, that's a reciprocity structure. That's an informal credit relationship, all right? And what would happen in that situation, this is happening with friendships all the time, is as a friend gives you something, for example, say you go to dinner, they, they're giving you something, and you, you're kind of accruing a sort of unmeasured and informal type of debt, as it were, all right? You, there's a sort of like type of mental accounting that's going on where your friend will know that they've given you dinner, all right. And if you keep on going to dinner at their place and never offering to return a dinner to them, at some point, the friendship's going to break down. Right. So a lot of relationships are based upon these informal credit relations between people where we all sort of, it's kind of give and take. All right. And so there's nothing inherently wrong with being indebted to people. All right. And actually, if you took that relationship, that sort of informal credit relationship and formalized it and abstracted it. This is often what, how you create a monetary system, right? You have these much more sort of formal legal credit structures, which is how you can have much larger networks of people interacting with each other. So there's nothing, the first point to make is there's nothing inherently wrong with people, quote unquote, not being able to pay back their debt because actually societies in general are always constantly enmeshed in a type of indebtedness. In an interdependent economy, Everyone is sort of, quote unquote, indebted to everybody else in the sense that you cannot really survive by yourself, right? So a hypothetical, if you're trying to sort of imagine a world free of debt, it's almost like trying to imagine a world free of relations. So that's an important point to make. So, the, the, and so when people say stuff like, it's impossible for us to pay back the debt, it's like, well, true. But then if you actually tried to pay back the debt, you would have no monetary system, all right? There would be no actual interdependent economy. This is quite a complex point to, con to convey. Yeah. Well, I think what I'm curious about is because banks 
will, for example, write negative, let's say someone borrows a million, so they write negative a million in their own accounting. And then when the person returns that one million, that's reciprocity. There's a take and a give back. But at the same time, the bank always issues or requires an interest payment on yeah, top of sure, that. Sure, so sure. people have to pay back the one million and even more. So given that the existing cash system is as it is, like, is it possible for everyone to be paying back what they took in reciprocity, plus give back even more to big finance with the interest payments that they ask for? Yeah, sure. So, so the, I guess the point I was making is that is sort of a sort of a broad one on quite a lot of people get a little bit hung up on the idea of debt being a bad thing. There's nothing really wrong with debt in principle, right? The sort of toxic elements of debt tend to be around who's issuing it on what terms and on on are they doing it in an extractive kind of way mm. so yes in the banking sector there's a very often a very extractive process via which debt is issued and the core sort of the, the way that banks issue issue money is that they don't when a bank's issuing out new digital chips into society they're not doing it for nothing right they in turn will extract back loan agreements from people, right? Which are often worth more than the chips they're issuing out. So what banks are often doing is they create this kind of like, and sorry if this sounds really obscure, but they create a kind of pressure differential in society where they're sort of they're they're actually issuing out claims against themselves to us. So the money you hold in the bank account is actually a claim upon the bank. It's a liability, right? It's something they've promised out. But in return, how they've often created that is they've often extracted a kind of loan agreement back from society, which in, which will create a reverse flow at some point. And often, so banks create these kind of sort of structures where they're slowly extracting money from society over the long term. Okay, the key thing to bear in mind, though, with the politics of this is that banks are not the only ones who are able to create money here. I mean, the the first issuer of money in society is the state. Right, or the Federal Reserve in the case of the US, for example. So sometimes people get hung up on this idea that like there's a limited amount of money and there's more interest. There's not enough money in, in circulation to pay the interest. So there's something fundamentally parasitic going on. Right? But really, if there's a debt crisis, for a start, debt can just be written off. It frequently is. So it's just canceled. Well, alternatively, the state can create new money so there's not like a kind of hard limit on the money supply. I'm kind of going around in circles on the question here. But it's, so it's true that the banking sector has this parasitic element to it where it's trying to extract from society, but it doesn't have a complete chokehold over the monetary system. So there are ways of breaking its power, as it were. Mm. Something else I would love to highlight is this lose-lose situation that the vast majority of people may find themselves in, given our current system, that whether the economy is in a boom or a bust, most workers and the planet will find ourselves perhaps overextended and unfulfilled. I'd love it if you could connect the dots between the large-scale bank overcommitment and small-scale emotional burnout experienced by individuals, and talk about how a systemic optimism or a systemic withdrawal affects most people, though ultimately leaving most still at a loss. Okay. This so this this um partly comes from this that article that I wrote called An Emotional Guide to Fractional Reserve Banking, where 
I was talking about this sort of inverse relationship between exuberance in the banking sector at a sort of meta scale and personal burnout at our scale. Okay. So one of the things that banks are doing when they're issuing this new money out and extracting loan agreements in the process is they're sort of seeking out, you can almost th think of them like, I'm trying to think of it a metaphor, like heat-seeking missiles, or trying to find unexploited frontiers of production, all right? So, for example, if there is a set of natural resources or an ecology that hasn't been exploited, and there's a bunch of human beings without a job, that's a, an inherent... Uh, potential for the banking sector, right? They say, okay, here we have a bunch of laborers who want to do something and a bunch of resources that can be exploited. But currently the economic network hasn't reached out and commodified that frontier, right? So we can push out new money, which will then mobilize those workers, you know, via, for example, a corporate structure, and get them to go and exploit those resources, which will produce new things, which will then kind of like neutralize the increased money pushed out. So this is often discussing stuff like inflation, like new money can always be created provided that there's new resources to mobilize because it'll just like the economic network will expand. So this is what they're doing when they're doing stuff like fractional reserve. They're pushing out credit to sort of mobilize production to, in theory, produce new things. This is a kind of like idealized version of what actually happens, right? But so when banks are very exuberant about the future, they're pushing out all this money. They're pushing out credit, right? And they're saying, go and mobilize this. Go and build these buildings here. Go and do X, Y, and Z. Exploit this resource, right? But this often at a human scale in terms of people, it's often linked to overwork and kind of personal burnout. So you have this personal overwork. Now, you often have when the banking sector is going into crisis, it often will retract. It'll, it'll like pull away from society. Okay, so during, the, for example, the financial crisis or any downturn, it kind of does the opposite to what it is sort of exuberant phase. It'll suddenly retract from society and pull stuff back. So this is when you get these like credit crunches. And it sort of retreats into itself, as it were. And actually, weirdly, this can sort of give people a form of rest. And, and I'm, I'm reluctant to how far I would push this, this argument. But when you're thinking about the sort of politics of like large-scale monetary politics, you know, with the Federal Reserve and all the banking sector, this is often what's going on. When the banking sector is all happy and exuberant, the Federal Reserve will just sit back and say, okay, let them do what they're doing. But when suddenly the banking sector goes into shock and pulls back, suddenly the state will try to kick in to sort of like kickstart the capitalist system again. This is where you'll suddenly have all these debates about should there be quantitative easing or should there be some kind of stimulus program and so on. So basically what's happening is you've got this huge interdependent network and the core players that hold the monetary system together are, have kind of gone into shock. And so you suddenly need the state to sort of jolt it back into life again. Mm. And this is how we know that these crises are systemic because when the economy is booming, it means that more and more parts of the planet are going to become financialized and commodified. It might lead to overworking and over-extraction. And as Absolutely, we saw with yeah. the COVID pandemic, when there's a recession, a lot of people get laid off. And at the same time, some people talk about how there's less air pollution. So 
it's better for the environment. There might be a little less extraction in some ways, but a lot of families are struggling from not having jobs. So in a lot of ways, this does appear to be a lose-lose situation, which means that the crisis is much deeper than uh, viewing growing the economy as the way to improve people's quality of living. Yeah, well, we, we're, we're hostage to the system, right? I think an important thing to, for people to realize if you want to try and doing this sort of, you know, metascale analysis of large-scale economies is that all human economies throughout history, regardless of what type you're talking about, revolve around interdependence. Okay, so in a very small-scale hunter-gatherer society, you're interdependent. You depend upon each other, right? But it's at a very small scale. You can see everybody who you're dependent upon. You know what you're doing. You, you, can, you know how you survive, essentially, because it all operates at a very small scale. But as economies scale up, you still have intense interdependence, often a lot more interdependence than you have in a very small scale setting. But you start to lose sight of it. You start to entertain the illusion that actually you're independent partially because you can't see the people who you become dependent who who you're dependent upon right so example to have this computer right now i'm dependent upon people who are living many thousands of kilometers away a place like shenzhen for example right i have no idea who they are but i'm dependent upon them i can engage in the illusion that somehow i'm an independent being in this interdependent network because i can't see anything that i'm actually dependent upon right now when you're sort of starting to analyze power in very large-scale interdependent networks, this becomes this. I mean, it's a very core thing to do because during these crises, for example, during the pandemic, everyone kind of goes into shock because sections of the system are falling down and it's affecting them. And so the key question starts to come in is like, where do the interventions get made? Who gets saved first? So, for example, capitalist states will often the first thing they'll do is try to save the corporations, right? They won't try to save the the ordinary person. They'll try to save the banking sector. They'll try to save the landlords because the landlords are connected to the banking sector. And if the landlords go down, the banking sector is going down. So like help people pay their rent so the landlords don't go bust so the banking system doesn't go bust, right? So there's all these interdependent webs and it's very, very hard to see it. And I guess the core sort of like challenge of sort of progressive politics is around how do you deal with the fact that we are stuck in these vast interdependent capitalist systems that we can't really get out of and somehow intervene in them to to create progressive outcomes. Mm. Well, to go deeper into where we're headed, you note 5,000 years ago, monetary systems were small and isolated, but have come to engulf our civilization. Money facilitates access to all other things we are dependent upon, making it an ultimate object of dependence. This takes on a whole new dimension, however, when we lose the ability to directly hold our money, end quote. We're at a time when, as you name, there are conspirators working synergistically to eliminate cash, the banking sector, payment companies, the fintech industry, and states and central banks. And this really feels so immense that it can feel conspiratorial. I'm not sure it's about anyone orchestrating this per se, but I think the bigger point is how the profit-driven system itself incentivizes the continued centralization of power and wealth in all systems. But to explore the motives here, what is the relationship between the digitization of money and global corporate capitalism? And why would the corporate world see cash as a form of constraint to the acceleration of their growth and control, which leads people not necessarily choosing digital payments out of free will, but maybe more so being pulled in that direction? 
Yeah, sure. So this is what my new book is all, all about, right? Is the cash system. So the, the system of physically government money issued in physical form versus this bank issued digital money, right? So this is what cloud money is largely about. And the politics of the different types of money. And one of the big arguments I'm making is that when you zoom out and look at the current configuration of our economic system, the broad trajectory in any large-scale capitalist system is towards concentration of, well, it's like a profit accumulation impulse, right? And especially when a system gets to a very, very large scale, it becomes very hard to control that impulse. And I'm, I'm probably taking a few steps ahead here. But, you know, in a very small-scale society, you tend to be able to exercise a degree of control of your economy, right? You kind of, it's sort of embedded in your world. You're able to see what everyone else is doing. And if somebody's really accumulating far too much, you can bring them down to size or there's ways and means of dealing with it, right? Because it's all embedded in your environment. But the larger the scale of your economy becomes, the more sort of disembedded it becomes, the more kind of like disembodied it becomes, as it were, or like disassociated, right? So in large parts of the financial sector often feel like that. They're very disassociated from the underlying reality of the, well, the sort of like ground level reality of the economy. So rarely when you look at global corporate capitalism, it has this kind of inhuman feel to it, largely because it's detached from this community foundation. So the, the only real thing that corporations are actually able to act upon in the final analysis is profit accumulation because they're kind of detached from anything else. And if you, if you take this analysis seriously, you'll start to see that the global capitalist system operates in ways that there's a kind of like, this can sound kind of trippy, but there's a certain sort of like inhuman impulse going on. It's doing things that aren't really in the interest of a small-scale person. It's doing things that are in the interest of large-scale corporates, right? Even though those corporates have people working for them, okay? Mm. So if, when you start to analyze, for example, the, the decline of the cash system in this the sort of physical money systems we use, you can easily see that actually the cash system slows down profit accumulation. It slows down speed, scale, complexity. And if you're a very large player, speed and scale and automation are things you need to become even bigger. So the cash system has this like exerts this drag upon the overall consolidation impulse within corporate capitalism. Okay, so this is why I'm arguing the cash system is currently being destroyed, not because ordinary people desire convenience and so on. It's being destroyed because it's slowing the system down. And that will manifest in your consciousness, perhaps via hegemonic cultural processes, as you know, you might imagine yourself as choosing to move to digital payments and so on. But in reality, it's got nothing to do with what you want. It's got to do with what the system requires. And that's one of the big arguments I'm making in terms of, of this um, move away from cash. But this is, you know, it's important to note that capitalist systems go through multiple phases. So in an earlier phase, if we rewind a few hundred years, the cash system at one point would have been one of the mechanisms via which capitalism extended itself, right? Mm -hmm. It would have been at the leading edge at some point. You know, if you arrive in a pre-capitalist society where people don't even use money, and you arrive, you think about these old colonial times, one of the ways you would incorporate people into the market economy was to force them to pay taxes in cash, actually, in physical units of money. So there was a point in time when the cash system was the leading edge of the expansion of market economies. But, but in the current phase of global capitalism, 
the cash system has almost become anti-capitalist in the sense that it's slowing things down now. It's sort of become a sort of site of resistance. People who still insist on using cash in a way are rejecting the trajectory towards ever-increasing scale and automation from big players like Amazon and the banking sector. Mm. So this is what I'm writing about is the sort of the weird ambiguities of how the cash system is actually strangely now currently stands in the way between the fusion between big finance and big tech at a global scale, which is one of the reasons why I think it should be protected. Yeah, it's certainly interesting. The cash system was a tool of centralization, but it is much slower than digital money. So Yeah, and it actually enables... And this is all relative again, right? Right. Depending from what standpoint you're looking at it. But in our current phase of capitalism, it actually enables decentralization. If you think about mm-hmm. how I mean, cash gets issued by central players, but it, if you think about the way it actually moves through the society by, from hand to hand in local settings and local physical settings, that's totally antithetical to the business model of large-scale digital corporates like Amazon, which require you to destroy time and space, right? Amazon cannot be its size unless you reject localism and unless you reject slowness. It basically requires these huge scaled systems, right? Where you're basically sending messages across the globe. Okay. So in terms of the ideological structure of our society right now, we're constantly told that what we all desire as human beings is ever more scale and speed and convenience and stuff. But really, that's actually just a corporate profit maximization impulse being channeled through the culture. And, you know, I sometimes analyze things in terms of this term hegemony or hegemony, depending on how you want to say it, which is this <laughs> Grumsky, you know, this guy Grumsky came up with this, this, uh, this concept, which is like the situation when your culture starts to present the interests of a very powerful group as being the interest of all, all right? So when you walk through the streets right now and you speak to people and you say, hey, do you like Apple Pay? They, everyone, a lot of people say, yeah, it's cool, it's nice and convenient and so on, right? There's a very uncritical way of talking about this. And that's a, that's a hegemonic structure, all right? You basically have internalized the worldview of big tech and you believe that really it's for your own interests. I mean, many, many people will experience this. So this, I have a huge, I get a huge amount of flack when I'm trying to talk about why the cash system is important because so many people have internalized the message that ever more scale, speed, and complexity is in their interests. Right. There's certainly a lot of dominant framings and messaging to question. I remember reading about how the Gates Foundation awarded an $11 million grant to MasterCard in 2014. And this is MasterCard with an annual net income of $8 billion in 2021, receiving an $11 million grant from the Gates Foundation. And the purpose of that grant was to support one of their projects of quote-unquote financial inclusion as MasterCard was working to financialize Nairobi, Kenya and into West Africa and beyond, meaning to get these people in these communities into their financial systems, moving them from their cash-based communities to bank money-based systems. And you talk about how practitioners in this field often use the term unbanked or underbanked to refer to those who do not use formal financial institutions in their day-to-day lives, but it's a descriptor that carries a value judgment, end quote. So what is implicit in this framing of financial inclusion that we should maybe challenge and question? And we kind of touched on this, but what does it mean for local communities through the lens of control and sovereignty as they become financialized by big finance? 
Sure. Um, so if you're looking at what the broad trajectory in corporate capitalism is, it's towards institutional intermediation and in everything. And if you don't abide by that, you will start to get presented as if you're out of sync with everything. So and the, one of the examples I use is to sort of convey this is like, Imagine you're a person in a rural rural area who rides a bicycle to a small outpost shop and you use cash to buy something. Now that, that's actually a very normal interaction. There's nothing there's nothing wrong with that interaction you just did. You rode a bicycle somewhere and you entered a shop and you bought something with cash. But through an institutional lens, through a particular ideology, you could present that in a particular way. You could say the person is unubered right? They're using their own transport. They're not using a corporation's hyper-efficient, digitally intermediated form of transportation. So they're unubered. The fact that they're buying from a shop, you could say they're unAmazoned. Mm. They haven't been absorbed into Amazon. And the fact that they're using cash, you could say they're unbanked. They're not using a bank. So this unbanked concept is always presented as if somehow it obviously represented a step up in the world. But what you're talking about is you're getting captured within an institutional framework or a type of conglomeration of institutions. Okay. Now, the reason why some institutions or, or some people believe that this is in your best interest is that if you indeed are captured like a hostage within corporate capitalism and you lack access to its core institutions – you might indeed start to find yourself being rejected and excluded from the economy. So if indeed everyone else is being absorbed and you're not, you're going to find yourself in relative terms being disadvantaged, right? which will subsequently lead to this mentality that you can be saved by joining everybody else. Right? This is what they call financial inclusion often. It's like, oh, well, lots of other people have been absorbed into dependence upon Visa and MasterCard. Now, you must also be absorbed. Otherwise, you will be rejected, right? Because really, the trajectory of the global economy is not controlled by you. It's controlled by these big players. And if they are rejecting you right now, you're disadvantaged, right? So it leads to this kind of Stockholm syndrome type of mentality, which is really what you're doing is entering a state of capture or you're being absorbed. But because if you don't enter that state of capture, you will be, in a sense, marginalized, we can present the state of capture as if it was a positive thing, okay? And somehow the act of incorporating you as being some great revolution or great kind of like wonderful act of humanitarian aid, right? Which is what the financial inclusion community, at least the mainstream part of it, often does. And Visa and MasterCard and all the big players, all the institutionalized thinking places like you know Bill and Melinda Gates and so on, they all carry this mentality that is obviously desirable to bring you in. And this becomes a very controversial area because one of the ways that um, if you're looking at the sort of history of capitalist systems is actually sometimes the worst position to be in is to be partially integrated into a capitalist system. Actually, people who are totally detached can often be better off than a person who is partially attached to it. So if you're sort of like half dependent on these institutions and you, you sometimes get access and you sometimes don't, this is often where sort of systems of poverty lie. So in a way, one of the, the sort of crudest ways to show this is to look at sort of uncontacted indigenous groups in the Amazon. In many ways, uncontacted groups are fine. They have a world, they have a sort of a, a, a sort of structural integrity to their world, 
right? It hasn't been broken by the intrusion of a capitalist system. But if you were sort of half stuck in a sort of indigenous society and half in a, in a market economy, you're kind of like messed, you're really like sort of screwed over. And this is often what's happening in even, for example, in places like Amazon, where you'll have these like incursions going on. So yeah, this is what the, I'm kind of, I'm kind of going on with this, this answer, but like <laughs> the deep politics of this is like, do you really, you know, is it really in your interest to get absorbed by the system? And on what terms are you going to get, get absorbed? And will you be on the lowest subordinated rungs of the, the market economy when you get, in, quote unquote, included into it? Right. And that really speaks to how there are different forms of, quote unquote, poverty as well. Because if someone is monetarily poor while living in a financialized city, that's going to be extremely difficult. But somebody else could be living in a land-based subsistence economy and be monetarily poor, but you know, not be hungry and Absolutely. be very food yeah. secure and have access to community, to relationships, yeah. to land that can provide really health-enriching foods yeah. and so forth. And that's a very so, good way of conveying that partial integration concept because the partial integration is really like where you get screwed. Yeah. So it's really worth questioning when NGOs and so forth will determine a community's quality of life based on their average wage or their daily income, because that doesn't account for the full picture of the maybe different forms of economies that they already have. And in my conversation with Dr. Vandana Shiva, I recall she gave this example that was really, really helpful of how in a cash-based economy, when someone goes to the market and pays $20 for a bag of produce, the farmer receives that $20 in their entirety. But when one uses a credit card to pay for the same thing, a certain percentage from every transaction gets extracted and into the hands of big finance. So we can imagine if every monetary transaction in the world between people become financialized, what that would mean for the extraction of wealth from the bottom up and from decentralized places to centralized corporations. And that to me made it very clear why there are incentives for big finance to try to make more and more people dependent on them. And I know you're well aware of the contradictions of technology, though, as you share, technology is double-sided. We experience it as empowering, and yet it increases our dependency. The external gadgets that support us come to mold our actions and thoughts as innovations that are initially received as new options, but go on to become mandatory necessities, end quote. This leads me to believe that the broad judgment of anti-tech or anti-innovation really need to be teased out more because resistance against these changes taking place are often framed as a broad stroke as anti-tech, anti-advancement. But for me, there's always an important distinction to be made, like innovation for what purpose, to benefit who and at what cost, and who gets to decide what advancement even looks like and to what ends it's oriented. So maybe it's not so much the idea of innovation or our capacities for creativity, but the underlying incentives guiding those imaginations and realizations. Kind yeah. of a long ramble, but I wonder what else this might stir up for you in this moment. Yeah, I mean, it's doing tech critique is notoriously difficult because you're often going against a dominant hegemonic ideology that more tech is always better. Now, bear in mind, the reason why that ideology is in place is that there's a particular type of technology promoted by capitalist institutions, which is all about profit accumulation, right? So most mainstream futurism where people are imagining a future, is basically just taking the corporate profit interests of companies and sort of like putting a sort of futuristic spin on them, right? 
often when you're looking at sort of tech futurism, there's a very specific type of technology that will be seen as valid and others that won't be seen as valid, right? So what we don't see is as important as what we do see. That's kind of a complex thing to say. But there's many types of technology that won't get built precisely because they don't operate in the along the rungs of corporate profit accumulation. Okay, And we often, we'll never get to see what those technologies are because they don't get built. Mm. So that's one, one thing to say. But so the, the, the dominant cultural ideology we live under is this idea that somehow has this inevitability to a certain trajectory of technological development, which is often the, the type of technology that's, that's appropriate to a large-scale capitalist network is either about automation to cut costs for corporates, or it's about being able to sort of sell some new product, or it's about military power, which is often what underpins these systems. And so those are like the types of technologies that we're used to. Um, but within the ideology of technology, for example, if you go to Silicon Valley, there'll be this idea that there's no trade-offs involved, all right? So that technology only expands your world. It doesn't take something away. It only brings something new. And it will also bring this idea that that, that expansion and cap capabilities is never neutralized, all right? It's never like reduced to zero, okay? But in reality, what actually happens in human society is not only are there trade-offs in technology, I mean, when you get something, it takes something away, but also they often get neutralized, right? The, the, the benefits you gain from it, you will only temporarily experience. You will only temporarily experience the joy of a new technology for like six months, maybe, if you're lucky, before it becomes neutralized and becomes a baseline standard in your world from which you will then perceive everything else. Mm. This is quite hard to convey. One, one of the sort of like examples I use to convey this is around cars in, in cities like Los Angeles. So, so within, within a capitalist system, technology is like never used to save you time. It's used to expand production and increase speed. So for example, if you were living in a, in a sort of tribal society and a car was introduced, right? And let's say you previously had to walk one kilometer to get somewhere. Suddenly, you've like gained a bunch of leisure time because the car enables you to get there much faster, right? And let's say you just like sealed it off there. That would be like an increase in leisure time. But in reality, in a capitalist economy, that would never happen. What would actually happen is that you would use the car to expand production. So you would basically extend your community much further, right? So you'll build big cities because suddenly you have the ability to live very far away from your place of work. So places like Los Angeles, for example, are these gigantic urban sprawls because you have a car a technology introduced in a particular economic context, which will then sprawl everybody out. So you'll end up living really far from everything because the car enables it and the car will expand production. Okay. Now, if you find yourself born into the situation on the outskirts of Los Angeles and you don't have a car, you will start to perceive yourself as being disadvantaged if you don't have it. So let's say you're like a teenager and you want to get to your girlfriend across the other side of town and you're like, man, it's so far away. It's 10 kilometers. It's so like inconvenient to walk that far. All right. I need a car. The car empowers me. The car industry acts on my behalf. All right. But really what's happened there is that the car industry has a chokehold over your economy. You cannot operate unless you use its products. 
So again, it's this like Stockholm syndrome kind of thing. You believe that your captor somehow has your best interest at heart. So really, you then desperately want a car because it'll enable you to operate in this society, right? But if some time traveler came to you from the past, let's say from you know a much earlier society, they would just say to you, like, why are you living so far away from your girlfriend? Mm-hmm. You know, why are you in the situation to begin with? Why don't you just live next door to her? Then you could walk. Walking would not be inconvenient if it was 200 meters. It's only inconvenient because it's like 30 kilometers away. And the reason it's 30 kilometers away is that you have cars. So this is the kind of like really complex thing to convey to people about technology. I'll often have people with digital, digital money say to me, oh, well, but it's so convenient, right? And, and then I'll say, and yet you're busier than ever before. The reason why you perceive this as convenient is that if you don't adopt it, you start to get shafted within this accelerating economic network. And you're basically like stuck in the situation. So that's a very, very long, elaborate thing. But it's, it's really hard to convey people like the, the, the contradictions and ambiguities of technology. Yeah, it seems like we're increasingly locked into these systems so that they become inevitable. So it's really important to take a step back to contextualize and to think about how we even got to where we are in the first place, where so many of these things have become unavoidable parts of our daily lives. And I know we don't have too much time to give this the proper (laughs) exploration it deserves at all, but I still wanted to bring this in with you. Cryptocurrency has often been propped up as a radical decentralized alternative to disrupt centralized monetary systems. But how is it that something that started out as this imagined antithesis to big finance and big tech became something that is increasingly embraced by financial institutions and mega corporations? And how might it instead, far from being revolutionary, as you share, even further dystopian trends rather than combat them? In terms of that quote, to sort of contextualize it, there's there's a couple of things going on. There's like the cryptocurrency world, which is the sort of people trading Bitcoin and stuff like that. But then there's there's the co-optation of the underlying technology, which has been happening in the corporate sector. And bear in mind, the original Bitcoin system in broad strokes, was a system for coordinating action between strangers, right? People who don't know each other at a large scale. Okay, so we're, we're stuck in these super large-scale economies where we don't know each other. And this was a system, and historically, for that, for that situation to exist, you need these large institutions that mediate between people, right? Because that's, that's the only way human beings can operate at scale. You historically can't operate at scale unless you're going through institutions. And the crypto world has a sort of like ideological excitement because it's basically saying, okay, we figured out a way to take super large scale networks of people who don't know each other and allow them to coordinate action between themselves without going through these overt central institutions. Okay. Um, and that was the basic excitement. So it's a coordination technology. Now, that's a separate issue to whether or not Bitcoin actually operates as a counterpart to the monetary system, which is like a separate topic. But in terms of the corporate sector, the corporate sector already basically is the the dominant set of players within our global economic system. And corporations have to coordinate action between themselves all the time, right? A large-scale mining corporation has like vast supply chains and so on. Banks have these huge interconnected systems between themselves. So big oligopoly players have to coordinate action between themselves as well, and, and they often struggle to do that. So lots, a lot of the kind of co-optation of blockchain technology has been them saying, hey, here's a coordination technology that ordinary people could use, but we could also use it right? Mm. We can figure out new ways to coordinate action between ourselves because we already have to do that. 
So what's called like private blockchains or consortium blockchains and all this kind of stuff is basically just like business as usual, like reframed in a new way. So that's the kind of like corporate use of blockchain technology. But then even within the sort of like populist type of like realm of sort of the ordinary person, crypto has become extremely problematic. And I mean, it's, I, could, I could go into the depths of that as well. But it's, it's you know, it, it has provided a lot of like fascinating new opportunities for people in the sense of like, there are some like actual things that it's doing, but also it's promoting extremely conservative thinking on monetary systems, sometimes like downright, like right wing thinking on monetary systems. And actually that's often being absorbed by like previously sort of progressive thinking groups. Um, I've seen lots of like, hippies for example getting really like sucked into like right-wing monetary theory via their exposure to crypto token trading so this is like a worrying ideological tendency and i could explore i could explain that if you want me to i don't know if you want me to to go into that well in the interest <laughs> of time i think we'll use this as a preview hopefully to a future conversation we yeah, might yeah, have yeah. on you kind of need the whole conversation on this yeah because yeah we could spend hours talking on cryptocurrency alone. But we are nearing yeah. the end of our main conversation here. And what's really interesting for me is that we know diversity lends itself to resilience. And yet we're sort of experiencing the illusion of an increased diversity in many ways, while in actuality ex experiencing a decrease in diversity in all aspects of life, in biodiversity, cultural diversity, the diversity of actual currencies of life and decentralized financial systems. And as you've shared, major oligopolies conglomerates of mega firms are forming out of this process of the merging of big finance and big tech, but they're concealed behind a proliferation of apps that give the superficial appearance of diversity, end quote. And even at a smaller scale, I find this to be true for our experiences at the supermarkets as well. The continued centralization and homogenization of our food systems are masked behind a proliferation of food brands that give the illusion of diversity. Mm, so yeah. to wrap up here, how might we actually decentralize i know it's a big question but how might sure, we actually yeah. decentralize and diversify the representational and real currencies of life and not become locked further into something that may appear to be empowering but in the long term really disempower us and are there even possibilities to dream beyond cash dependent systems that you thought about sure, given that yeah, they're yeah. the representational and reductive monetary currency itself is incapable of fully and properly capturing the true value of care fulfillment relationships and our planetary riches yeah yeah i mean look i've been involved in alternative economy movements for quite a long time and We've worked many alternative currencies, alternative banking, alternative alternative everything, you know, in, in economies. And maybe a couple of things I'll just say, this is not going to fully answer your question, but there's often two intuitions, competing intuitions that go on in economic reform, shall we say, or people interested in like this so-called new economy. Okay. So at one hand, there's a kind of a recognition that we live in the sort of vortex of corporate capitalism, okay? And it is kind of like a vortex. It sort of like sucks people in, right? If you look, for example, right now, everyone's sort of being sucked into the digital payments and card systems. It's, it's literally like a kind of like gravity well, like pulling you in or, yeah, like a kind of vortex system pulling you in. And one intuition that a lot of historic alternative economy movements have is to sort of pull back and pull against that. All right. So if you look at 
you know, all these like anarchist sort of communes or people setting up permaculture gardens and, you know, there's whatever, there's many different of these things where it's like there's a recognition that the economic system pulls away from human society and you try to pull back. So you're going to reground it. So it's like, let's build, despite the fact that the market economy doesn't incentivize me to build a community garden, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to try and like set out this like, this type of system against this, you know, against the vortex. And so there's a lot of this kind of stuff, you know, local community initiatives and stuff like that. And, but it's very hard to sustain these because they go against the grain of the profit accumulation impulse that governs our system. Okay, and so the history of alternative economy movements is littered with like all these like dead projects precisely because they can't, it's too exhausting to hold them in play. All right, and I can, I can almost imagine, sometimes I visualize it a bit like you're in this like hurricane and there's all these little groups trying to like bed down tents against the hurricane. And they, it's, it's sort of par- periodic intervals, they just get sucked up and destroyed and you're left with these sort of empty tent sites. Mm-hmm. So alternative co- economy is filled with all these like dead projects like that. Now the other impulse that you'll find is people who say, let's work with the dynamics of the system. Let's go with the vortex, all right? So people like who are working in you know, green finance or working in sort of profitable forms of entrepreneurialism where they believe they can change stuff. Social entrepreneurialism has a bit of this element to it. So let's work, you know, with the dynamics of the system and then try to sort of like Trojan horse in changes. Okay. And that's kind of like an impulse that goes on. And often those things can be totally ineffective because they don't really actually change anything. And I think the most interesting stuff for a person going forward in terms of thinking about how do you change systems is to try and sort of like navigate some space between that to say, okay, you know, the reality is if you're trying to survive in a market economy, you have to figure out ways to like sustain yourself and make money. And if you're not working with the grain, you're going to get like screwed, right? But if you work too much with the grain, you're not going to do anything. So a large part of the Web3 community right now, a lot of the kind of crypto-y progressive parts of the blockchain community kind of have some of this intuition. They're like, maybe if we sort of like work with the profit accumulation impulse through these like speculative token markets, we can sort of like pull to pull into being some like new economy somehow. And there's a lot of like hypocrisy and double think that goes along with that, but it's like an interesting impulse. So I think there's some quite like, I'm giving you a very generic answer here, but does this answer make any sense at all? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the conclusion is that there's a lot more to think about here and lots yeah, of con- yeah. contradictions, lots lots of layers, lots of nuance. Yeah, yeah. And sort of like thinking about how you sort of like work at that interesting intersection between what's considered realistic in a market economy and what's considered idealistic, right? Because there's, yeah. there's like an interesting space to navigate sort of walking kind of a tightrope as it were which might actually authentically create some positive changes in an economy right but if you go too far in either either direction you basically end up nowhere and i think that's a sort of interesting challenge for anybody trying to run a, a sort of new project to say you know can we work with the grain yet simultaneously change the dynamics of the system i don't have the specific answers for how you'll do that but um, <laughs> maybe that'd be my, my next book maybe
What has been a book or publication that you found really impactful? I really love Donut Economics by Kate Raworth. What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice you engage with to stay grounded? Oh, many, actually. And I guess I play lots of guitar and uh, sing. (laughs) Uh, And what are your biggest sources of inspiration at the moment? People who really inspire me right now are those who like embrace contradiction. I find myself not very inspired by people who are too like non-contradictory in their thinking, Mm -hmm. right? Who have these very sort of like black or white kind of views. I'm very, I find it very like enlivening to meet people who recognize that the world is characterized by contradiction as a basic ground level foundation. Right. That's that makes me excited when I see that or I feel that. I share that excitement as well. And I really enjoy these conversations that involve a lot of messiness and contradictions. So thank you so much for joining me on the show today. You've given us so much more to ponder and think about. To our listener, Green Dreamer, if you want to stay updated on Brett's work, you can head to brettscott.substack.com. And again, Brett's book is Cloud Money, Cash, Cards, Crypto, and the War for Our Wallets. For now, Brett, what final words of wisdom do you want to leave us with as Green Dreamers? Keep on dreaming and embrace the contradictory ambiguities of our glorious and troubled world. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To make a contribution to help sustain and co-create the future of this show, you can head to greendreamer.com support. Without a media network behind us, we also rely entirely on human-to-human word-of-mouth sharing so that our extensive library of episodes can inspire and reach more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with loved ones or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps us out so, so much as well. Green Dreamer is a proud partner of Kaliapea Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is The Witness by Rowan Rain. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our transcript editor is Janice Cantieri, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. 